0: Welcome to the Captivating Leadership Podcast with Rebecca Livesey, where we explore the rise of feminine energy in life, leadership, and business. This podcast is for you if you are a leader in business and corporate and you're struggling to find meaning in what you do and how you engage your team. So join us as we talk all things leadership, strategy, and culture and how we value both the feminine and the masculine in men, women, and society at large to make a difference in our workplaces. Thank you so much, Penny, for being on this podcast. It's a delight to have you. We, we connected in a really interesting way through a mutual colleague of ours, and he thought that we'd have a lot in common about talking with feminine energy. And so it, we've connected a couple of times, which has been fantastic, and I can't wait to share your story. So do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came into doing the work that you do now?
1: Um, okay. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, um. So I'm a British historian. I teach at Boston College, um, and I—how did I come to do what I'm doing? Of sort of, I took a circuitous route. Um, most people who do PhDs in history um, don't exactly go the route I did, <laughs> um, but I—I I, I guess history wasn't my first interest. Um, educating was. And that was because I um, grew up with such important teachers who made such a, a, a an important impact in my life. Um, and that's, I decided very early on that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, but I came from a family where um, higher education for women was not exactly okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I uh, had a neighbor who introduced me to um, uh, the idea of the military academies, which was not something I ever considered, um, but ended up going to the Naval Academy. And I always tell people, it's it's funny, uh, I have a, um, my husband does too. Uh, we have bachelors of science in history. Oh, really? um, <laughs> So it's a very, it's a very odd, but actually, in the end, very well-rounded education. <laughs> uh, so I drove ships for a while in the Navy, and then I uh, did my graduate work in Northern California, and then came to Boston College.
0: <laughs> right, so that's so interesting. It's, it's, it's like I've got, a, um, I've got a Master of Arts in Maths. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Just briefly touching on your, your Navy experience, so um, what was it like being, so you led teams in the Navy, um, what was it like being a female officer in the Navy?
1: Well, um, it, it, was, it, it wasn't strange for me, but it was clearly uh, odd, I mean, it was new. Um, When I was, I graduated from the academy in 95 and it was in 1994 when Congress, uh, the U.S. Congress repealed the combat exclusion law, which meant that um, women could go on the combat ships. And um, because uh, women could go into combat (laughs) on the combat ships, women had to go on the combat ship is that there's a political um, interest there. And so everyone in my class who was headed in a different direction was suddenly, um, asked to move in, in, uh, toward, um, assuming these combat roles on ships. Uh, so I was on the first integrated gender integrated ship on the West coast, Mm -hmm. uh, combat ship on the West coast. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Um, actually, I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious as to the... Uh, so oh, right, right, yeah. How, what it was like. So, yeah, so um, what, what being an integrated ship in the, early, the mid-90s meant was um, there were uh, female officers, but we didn't, uh, for the first year I was there, we didn't have any enlisted crew. The no. second year I was there, we had a female enlisted crew. Um, but so that meant my entire division was men. And the, for me, it wasn't that they were men. I, I grew up, I had nine brothers. So <laughs> men you were used to this. <laughs> yeah, being in the presence of a lot of men being outnumbered was not new for me. What was new is that it was this range from, you know, basically kids who are 18 years old and uh, to uh, grown adults who are um, in their mid forties, early mid forties, um, some of the the senior chiefs in my division, and so I was twenty two, <laughs> a kid, <laughs> and asked to assume command of a division. You know, and it's it's not like I had command of the ship; I just had I was in charge of this division. But that was you know, it's a very delicate thing to step in as a very junior person who has absolutely no experience um, to then take command and, and be a leader in a way that is effective, <laughs> gets the job done, but also doesn't alienate, you know, the people who are working with you. So
0: yeah. I imagine that the the style of the military. I've talked to some other people on this podcast around um, coming out of the military, and and the style is quite masculine because it, you know we have to get stuff done. I mean, it's one of those areas where you need a fair fair degree of directive, masculine leadership. And what did you find when you brought some more of the feminine traits in leadership? And I, I always talk about this; it could come from a man or a woman. You just happen to be a woman, um, but yeah, bringing some more of the feminine traits what, what happened then?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because I like the way you pose the question because it, it does allow for a woman to have a kind of spectrum, um, uh, in terms of a masculine style or a feminine style. And, um, and I think for me, because I just happen to have the personality I have, I, um, (laughs) I, I, I have a kind of masculine energy. So, um, for example, uh, when, um my mom dropped me off at the naval academy she, she she I'm standing there in the parking lot with my bags and then you know there's these upperclassmen ready to take over and start yelling at me and she turns and says penny i don't think you're going to make it and i was like wait what <laughs> and she said i said why on earth would you say that and she said well um you don't like people telling you what to do i was like that's a good point that's a really good point <laughs> And I just, I just have that personality, and I unfortunately have a daughter who has the exact same oh. personality. <laughs> Coming back to haunt you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but so I, you know, I can, I can hold my own, and I don't have uh, the, as I said before, you know, I was used to being around sort of outnumbered by men. But it was very clear to me also that I had this feminine side as well that was just more natural, or was as natural, I guess, as that um, personality trait. And it came out, and I'll give you two examples. One was when I first um, was asked to take, to assume a leadership role, and it was in my um, sophomore year at the Naval Academy, um, uh, or, or before the sophomore year, it's a summer before, and you can, we, we went to a training uh, school where, I would be in charge or I was in charge of training people who were entering in uh, to this prep school. And, um, you know, it was my first opportunity. I just spent a year of being yelled at by people and doing push-ups, and, you know, this this sort of standard thing you see on TV Um, and yelling at people is just not my thing. And so I went there and I wondered, well, how, am I going to do this? And so I kind of just played around with different approaches. And then I just sort of was myself. And I kind of, um, I, I just was very uh, clear about what my expectations were. But I wasn't hard on people. And I tried to understand and take people um, where they were. And I had this one guy um, who ended up, he he had, he was a little bit, troubled. He ended up going AWOL, which is, um, I don't even remember what it stands for, absent <laughs> without leave. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and so he ran away, basically. It was, he was really struggling, and I would talked to him several times. He'd come to me, and I'd counseled him, um, and we'd sort of developed this relationship, and where I, I felt like he trusted me, and then he ran away and they found him, and he was sort of holed up somewhere, and he called, and he said, "The only person he wanted to talk to was me and I just thought, "Wow, I was a sophomore in college, and here's this kid who is puts his life in my hands effectively, not you know not in the mm-hmm. and it wasn't actually his life, but he was probably going to go to to jail um and so it was it was just this really profound moment for me where I realized I had this, I I don't know if maternal is the right word for it because I, I don't feel like I, now that I have children, (laughs) I don't feel like that's a strong impulse in me, but it is this, um, empathy Mm -hmm. for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And just seeing someone where they are. And I think that has a feminine side to it. And, um, The other example is much shorter. Uh, (laughs) uh, It was when I was on my first ship, we were in the Persian Gulf, and I was the only woman in this scenario where, and, you know, there were only a few women on the ship anyway, but I was on watch as it happened. And we were chasing, you know, we were enforcing UN sanctions. um, And we really had, we were limited in what we could do as a, um, as a U.S. naval ship under those conditions, we couldn't obviously enter territorial waters without specific um, permission to do so. Um, but we were chasing this one uh, sanctions violator for a while, two, two days, as, as I recall. Um, and it's the middle of the night and I'm on watch and my captain comes down and he's getting pressure from above. And he's like, oh, we got to get this guy. We got to get him. Cause he, he, he's, he snuck into territorial waters outside one of the islands in the Persian Gulf, and so we couldn't chase him in there. Um, and so we're we're all staring at this, and the captain's getting madder and madder, and he's yelling, and he's like, he's like, people, we need some ideas, think. And I just I just remember having this thought, I'm like, well, I, nothing worse can happen. He can only just yell at me, so I I I said my idea, which was. There's an there's a international law, which if you're going from a, point A to point B, you can go through territorial waters. So I said, maybe if we just, you know, go from point A to point B, but on the way, catch this guy, <laughs> we could get him. And he was like, oh, he looks up at me and he goes, the lady has a point. And it was so funny to me because it, I, I never felt like a lady or a, a woman. I just felt like an officer. But he saw it as a woman, a, a woman contributing, that it was someone who who could think outside the box because in the Navy, when I was in the Navy, you know, it's 90% men and you mm-hmm. are outside the box. So it's not necessarily being a woman, just being a kind of outsider. you You can think differently because you're not in a way forced to think the way yes. everyone else thinks. So that, so that, those are the two examples I would give as kind of a. Feminine energy, different styles yeah. of feminine energy.
0: And the diversity of thought that is brought, because all of this for me is diversity of thought. And if um, if we continue to just see diversity as different people that look different to me in some way right. and where we're not actually getting diversity of thought, I mean, it contributes to it, but yeah, I think to succeed in the future, um, especially in the future of organizations, I think we need to bring this so that we've got great ideas coming up and what I think is really fascinating, it's a brilliant segue into the work that you do now, because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're a professor, have I got this right, professor of history at Boston University? Uh, Boston College, yeah. Boston College, sorry, yeah. And so the, what I love about the work that you do is you look back into um, a certain period of history in Britain. and everyone knows that I'm British and I know nothing about this period of history, which I find fascinating. (laughs) You taught me so much about my own country's history, which is hilarious. Um, But the patterns of people back then, and then compared to the patterns of people now, we can learn so much from this. So do you want to tell us a bit about your speciality, if you like your speciality in this area of history?
1: Yeah. I, um, I I would love to, (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and keep this short. I, um, so the period I study, I, I, I teach really all of British history, but I, I study, my research focuses on the late 18th, early 19th century, um, which was a period of incredible change. And there's one scholar who, Carl uh, uh, Polanyi is a, a, a big hero of mine. Um, he calls it the great transformation. Um, and so this is, this is a moment in history where, you know, people went from a form of life that had certain rhythms and paces. It had certain boundaries and limits. And then all of that just changed within um, one or two generations for, uh, for most people in Britain. And that, that is just so, interesting to me. I just, I'm infinitely fascinated by trying to think about how you go from a world. It's not like you just move to the city, right? Mm-hmm. People move from the country to the city all the time. It's that the kind of city that started to exist didn't exist before. It was, you know, this industrial city and factories and, you know, like there nobody could have imagined it, and it happened in such a short period of time, um, that process of transformation from a predominantly agricultural society to a predominantly uh, industrial society is is the the set of uh, issues that I'm really interested in.
0: Wow. And it happened over a couple of generations, which is nothing, is it? That's like we're talking grandparents to grandchildren generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Wow. And the... And so I, I was fascinated by this because I'm looking at this thinking um, everything we're talking about in this area can actually be translated into what we experience in patterns of people now. And even though obviously the environment's quite different, the transformation, like I love that language, the great transformation, we keep seeing that happen in various yeah. environments at the moment. And course, yeah. adaptability to it and how they come together to solve the problems is it's similar across the ages. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that um, a couple of the points, so you, you've written a book on this as well. Um, and I think a couple of the points that are, have come up for me when we've been talking is this whole piece around reputation management, which I'd love yeah. you to go into. And then um, the creation of benevolence funds. So do you want to talk to us about this reputation management? Cause this fascinated me when you, when you told me about it the first time.
1: Okay um so what's what's interesting about this period the late 18th to the early 19th century um and it's true from the early 17th century and it's it it continues to be true to the end of the 19th century but um the period where this massive change happened was a period uh w- which was marked the the um uh economic exchange in britain during this period was marked, and um, 90 to 95%, these are they're vague numbers, but it's somewhere in the vast, vast majority of economic exchanges were conducted on the basis of personal credit. Mm. And so this is the, the entire, so if, you're, if you think about it from the early 17th century, when England really starts to participate in the global economy in a significant way, and continues to do so over the course of the 17th century, and obviously the 18th century is when everything really really transforms. But from that early period, it's it's really important um, to go back and think about um, the ways in which the entire society was um, really structured around this kind of idea about People knowing who you are. Every single system of governance was local,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it, including from from the highest. Um, you know, uh, if you think about Parliament, one one uh, historian described Parliament as the national stage on which local interests and local problems were worked out. Mm. Um, and then you take that down to the actual the parish level, and to the poorest person, poor relief was done on the basis of um, personal relationships. You, you, you were assigned a parish based on a number of different criteria that changed over the course of the century, but you belonged, everyone in the country belonged to a specific parish and it was on that basis that you paid taxes, that you re- received poor relief. So the the entire system of governance in England from the, the 17th century revolved around this kind of personal knowledge and accumulating personal knowledge and what happens when you start to get this big increase in my internal migration and it happens there's a, a, a couple of moments when it kind of speeds up really quickly and in the middle of the 18th century internal migration and population growth are happening at the same time so what that what that does is mean, means people are moving out of local areas, even if they're not moving that far, all of a sudden that local knowledge is destroyed Mm -hmm. and people have to figure out how to, but, but, but credit is still conducted on the basis of personal relationships or personal knowledge of reputation. So the problem that emerges is a reputation-based economy with, people moving around that are essentially strangers to each other. Mm. So my book, Trust Among Strangers, is is looking at um, a couple of different aspects of that problem. Um, and you mentioned the benevolent funds. Um, so for working people, as they began to migrate in search of work, um, they started forming out of, again, out of the local... Pub-based uh, um, sociability—they would meet in the pub, and um, if someone uh, was out of work, if someone was sick, they would pass a hat and you know help that person through their time of need. And the question I was interested in was how did um, those local uh, friendly societies, as they they're called, uh, by the end of the 18th century in Britain, how did those scale up? Mm. to make it possible to give that kind of relief, which is a friendship. It's a function of friendship. You know, you relieve your friend. Yeah. And that's what was happening in these pubs. But then how do you scale that up to the level of the region, let alone the nation, which is what had happened by the end of the 19th century?
0: And, and I find this fascinating in the parallel world of looking at how organizations grow, because when organizations are in their, infancy of their small teams like you say all of the personal relationships are what gets things done and then once they get past a certain size they almost put in sometimes put in far too much governance to manage the fact that people don't have personal relationships with everybody and suddenly the organization gets stifled with this top-down hierarchical process-driven governance right and and it doesn't always help but we we know why they do it because well your book title trust among strangers this is the trust aspect there's not always a lot of trust so it's really curious that the the Britons in that time period over a period of about a century I think you said by the end of the 18th was it um had worked out a way to do this in a national way almost organically
1: yeah yeah. I mean, it really, it is organic because it's, it was a system of trial and error and mostly error as far <laughs> as I could tell. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because they, they, you know, there were models of top-down national and international organizations um, all around them. And one of the most important for them was the Freemasons. Um, but, they tried it, they said, okay, what do you do if you're, you wanna create a national organization? And, and they di- weren't asking that question sort of, you know, to start it from scratch. They had, they had been, uh, the, the, the group that I study are called the Odd Fellows and they had started a bunch of clubs in the greater Manchester area. And um, they, because Manchester is the heart of the Industrial Revolution, and you had people coming to Manchester and saying, hey, I'm an Odd Fellow, can you relieve me? And they're like, well, you're not, one of, you're not in our club, so why would we relieve you? And they, they kept, this kept happening because all roads during the Industrial Revolution uh, led to Manchester in a way. Um, and so they, they encountered this problem uh, organically as well. And and so once they tried to start to organize the national clubs that had called themselves Oddfellows um, all over the country, uh, they they went to the Freemason model and they're like, okay, if we're in charge, then we're going to create these standardized rules. Everyone's got to follow them. We're going to create a standardized ritual book, and everyone needs to follow them. And so if you travel. You have to know the rituals and the secrets of the organization in order to gain admittance and get relief in another place. Mm. Um, but then the standard, the standardization process failed almost immediately <laughs> because the odd, odd fellows around the country were like, well, why is Manchester in charge? What right do you have to be the head of this organization? And this went, Back and forth for years, um, from about eighteen ten to eighteen fourteen, and then they just said, "Never mind. <laughs> we'll <laughs> we'll just you know they it was the failure to institute that kind of centralized hierarchy that is what led them to this the model which was ultimately successful, which involved having two things structurally. It meant having. Um, uh, what they called an annual movable committee, so they the committee that met annually to decide on any question about what the organization would do and how it would function couldn 't even meet in the same place each year because everyone wanted it to be you know it, 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 if it moved then it was fair, yeah and so that part solved the organizational problem although not in a particularly efficient way <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh the other part was the funding and this is you know a perennial problem how do you get people and this it may be different from the kinds of organizations that you um help uh to think about different kinds of leadership and and organizational styles um there's no profit involved. Mm. So there's no incentive, there's no way to incentivize people in from a profit motive. Mm. And so they, so the question is really, how do you get people to take care of strangers to care about and spend their money on strangers to and help these them aren't
0: rich people are they these are not these are not the rich people of the of the nation
1: absolutely not yeah mm. and these i mean the odd fellows were for for working class people they were they tended to be in the first part of the 19th century they tended to be artisans so uh, among working classes they were affluent but that's not saying a whole lot mm. um they were still uh part of the working classes. Um, and by the second half of the century, it's, it becomes the organization is the membership is, is much more, um, unskilled laborers. Um, so yeah, these are not people who have a lot of money and yet this organization somehow managed that to get them to give their money to people they didn't know to help mm-hmm. people they didn't know. And what were some of the things that they did
0: to to help that? Because I look at this and think it's, it, you know, I'm stating the obvious back then, but, you know, we look at the world now and it's so easy to communicate and drive a cause and, and all of this. We're talking way, way back when they, the communications between groups must have been really tough and taking up for a long time. So how did they do this, this collaboration and this um, working towards the greater good? Like how, how, did they, how did they motivate people to do that?
1: well i think i think there are, there are there are some parallels with today um because uh they wanted to to be someone who is in a position to give was a- was a status thing was okay. a was an absolute status thing um and so like the freemasons who the odd fellows uh the odd fellows became the first um and the sort of most popular of the affiliated orders of the 19th century, um, they, uh, they were always sort of modeling themselves off the Freemasons. And even after they, they um, the centralization uh and the structure uh didn't work, they looked to them as the people they wanted to be like. Right. And and that's a uh, part of it is that Freemasons were always in the papers, um, being noted as someone who gave. You know, this Freemason um, club gave to this cause, and this is how much they gave. And so there is a there was a publication. You know, there was a publicity side to philanthropy in this period, and to be a member of the working class who was in a position to give was a big deal and they weren't in a position individually they were only in that position because they gave as a group. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's that's one side of it. The other side is that um they in the in 1824 started a magazine, the Oddfellows magazine um which I think it's still in publication. It might have, wow. I, 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 I'll have to check back on this. When I, when I was doing my dissertation research, it was still in existence. Not, yeah. not quite the same, but um, it went for um, more than 100 years. So it's a, it's a pretty amazing resource yeah. uh, to, to study. Um, but they, they, this is where they basically talk to each other. And it's obviously slow motion because it was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a quarterly, and then ultimately it was a monthly magazine. Um, but they talked about these things, and they they this is how I know that they modeled themselves off of the Freemasons, and and that they aspired to as a group to be an organization that could give. And um, going back to your question about how they convinced these working people to. To part with their money for strangers, um, the the key issue that needed to be funded th- is that person I was describing earlier, who is moving to Manchester or moving to Leeds, um, someone who is uh, moving in search of work, um, and and they needed relief while they were traveling, and then they needed you know help to find uh, jobs, um, and so. The problem with that, given the organization, each lodge could fund its own sickness relief and the burial stipend, and they knew everyone within their lodge. But it's this traveler that introduced this question and the problem of trust. Um, and it's a weird problem too in this period because mainly the direction of migration is 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 unidirectional. So it's going one way and not generally returning. And mm-hmm. so you 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 have the problem of the sending lodge getting rid of someone and yet not having to fund that person. And the receiving lodge ends up with the burden of the cost. Mm. And so at first they tried to figure out how to make it fair between the two lodges. And there were just endless fights and disagreements so I'm not trying to, I want to make it clear. These people weren't altruistic. They weren't weren't just like better than we are. They, um, they fought over this and they were very sometimes petty about it. Um, (laughs) but because they encountered these problems, uh, with the funding and because migration kept happening, they had to figure it out. And so the next, um, idea they had was instead of trying to calculate costs, instead of trying to figure out who owed what to whom in a precise way, they would say, um, let's just, they they said, let's start what's called a benevolent fund on the national level. And every lodge will pay some very small, you know, amount in every month. Um, And that fund would just accumulate it would get invested in you know, the money markets. Um, and so it would just be this, this constantly growing and sometimes diminishing fund that um, could be used toward any traveler. And the way they got them to agree to this was what I was talking about earlier is this idea that as a group, they're now philanthropists. They're not, they're not in receipt of relief. They're giving charity. to their own, you know? And so it was really, it's really this powerful moment when you read about it in, in their writing, because they're just, you can see it just, it all of a sudden, instead of like this petty fighting, suddenly it just, everything was possible. And they started suggesting like, okay, let's have an old folks home. Let's have charity schools for our, you know, orphans. Let's, you know, having a widows and orphans fund, you know, suddenly they were like, they couldn't find enough ways to give their newfound wealth away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just think that is brilliant though, that, um, you know, they came together. I get that there's going to be pettiness behind all of that, but <laughs> that they came together and solved this problem, but it wasn't done from a, a directive, this is what we're going to do approach. And it wasn't like, done from a up high telling us what to do it was a, a problem that was solved together yeah. and ultimately it's it's for the greater good and in the meantime while it's for the greater good it does make them look better as individuals as well <laughs> um, so i just i i'm just fascinated by the fact that that those those patterns can we've got it in us as humans to play out those patterns over and over again and that's why i was i was so fascinated by all of the work you've done, because I just think it shows that that collaboration and that solving problems and that coming together um, as part of what we can all learn from.
1: Yeah, I, I really, I I completely agree with you, and I, i've been I've been thinking about this a lot um, in in this other administrative work I do in my department, and you know, it's it, it, there's there's two different. Sort of models in academia too and and one is I mean the classic, and my department's fabulous, and we don 't actually have these kinds of meetings but i've i 've been in these kinds of meetings where nothing gets done, and everyone has something some something critical to say mm. but like my sense and and what 's been happening in my own life and some of the administrative work i 've been doing with some people in my department lately is that if you have um people who just want to solve the problem who are like, okay, there are no, there's no bad idea. Um, We can just, you know, let's just throw some things against the wall and see what sticks and nobody's critical. All of a sudden, like, you know, the first 10 things you say are stupid and they don't do anything, but like, all of a sudden it's just that feeling and the synergy that's created in the, in the actual energy between the people who are all, who are working together to, to do something they all agree is good. You know, it, it suddenly becomes a different kind of um, feeling in the room. Mm -hmm. And the productivity, (laughs) like, I mean, the productivity increases just enormously. It's, it's unbelievable. And for that
0: to happen, the people in the room have to have, left their ego at the door because it's not about their best idea or them getting credit for that idea it's about building ideas together
1: and yeah and a focus on the problem not yourself Mm. it it's it's funny this is this is you've just (laughs) made it possible for me to bring my two weird (laughs) um life's lives together um in the navy one of the things that always bugged me is that you go, you know you're the new person always as an officer being um inserted into uh a a division or um a department that has has been there longer, so enlisted people rotate f- every five years, but officers rotate every two and a half to three years, so it's right. just, it's a very different um thing. And I would come in and the first thing I'd say, Oh, we should do this, we should do that. And the and the oldest, you know, the most senior guy would say, Well, ma'am, the problem is. And so <laughs> I I developed this um, you know, real uh allergy to those words. <laughs> and I've banned them from my own home. And I also <laughs> I noted this in a meeting the other day with that I was uh where all this productive wonderful energy has been coming out of and I said I love working with you cuz you never say the problem is you say <laughs> how can we fix this problem. <laughs> so great. It
0: it's so true and I think that this is why I think organizations um and, and then why examining history is so important because we can to me it's always about the patterns of people and patterns of thinking and we hope that we evolute, I suppose over time with our patterns of thinking and make them so that they're actually serving the world in a better way I'm not sure that we always do that but we can certainly look back and go okay this this worked um back then because of this situation how can we apply it now and I think that adds another element of um problem solving layers over what's currently going on in the world or currently going on in our organizations
1: uh, I I I keep saying I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> We're just agreeing with each other. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's how I understand what I'm doing in history. I mean, I, I, I wrote this in an article I wrote as the conclusion. Um, why am I excavating these patterns um, in the past? Precisely as you just said it, the point is, um, it's not that we, can, we should start friendly societies again, but rather we should look at how other people in the past, you know, especially during this period of massive radical change, grappled with that change. How did they? Because actually they did make it work. The Industrial Revolution happened and Britain became the most, you know, for better and for worse, um, but still became this incredibly new and prosperous nation Um how did they manage that? How did they go from one world to another within a few generations? And and to me it's it's capturing different approaches to problems rather than the actual solution they came up with uh, yes. that that is helpful for us today.
0: Yes, the thinking, like how do you do this thinking in the the actions around that rather than just the solution itself like it's context as opposed to content exactly yeah 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 yeah, exactly yeah well it's been absolutely fabulous having you on here (laughs) because you're you're probably no you're quite different to the guests we've had before I don't think we've ever had a historian or I don't think I've even ever talked to a historian (laughs) before (laughs) I just love the parallels. And if it gets people and leaders in organizations just thinking that bit differently about what they're doing, then, you know, our job here is done. So
1: thank you so much. much You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. This was really fun talking to you. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Captivating Leadership Podcast with Rebecca Livesey. If you enjoyed this episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review as this helps us spread the message and keep the conversations going. If you'd like to find out more about Rebecca's work, go check out her website on achieveleadsucceed.com where you can sign up to receive her ebook on the five C's of feminine energy and a video of Rebecca talking about leadership and feminine energy. And we've also got a Facebook group where we talk about all things leadership and culture, particularly around masculine and feminine energy. And that's called Captivating Leadership. So you're very welcome to join us there too. See you soon.